coming up on Tech Nation, looking for snow leopards in war-torn Afghanistan. The former chief scientist of USAID, Dr. Alex Dagan, joins me to talk about the gritty reality of taking on this challenge in the Snow Leopard Project and other adventures in war zone conservation. Then we've all heard about phishing on the internet, those emails that try to grab our passwords, and more. Turns out there are many variations, which we'll hear about from Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis, the chief consumer security evangelist at McAfee. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. CRISPR is not a quaint British name for a toaster. CRISPR-Cas9 is a gene editing technology which has made the news in all kinds of ways. From its first announcements by scientists, to startups being formed to pursue healthcare applications, to twin babies referred to in the media as the Chinese CRISPR twins, to the recent call of a consortium of international scientists asking nations for a binding commitment to not permit gene editing of sperm, eggs, or embryos. I'm actually not talking about science here, but rather language. We know that the words we say mean something, but when we repeat a word or a phrase a lot, we like to shorten it. Just as Alexander quickly becomes Alex in use, CRISPR-Cas9 got shortened to CRISPR. Since you're likely hearing this in audio, you can't see that CRISPR has no E in it. It's C-R-I-S-P, and we're thinking we're going to get an E, but no, it's straight away into an R. C-R-I-S-P-R, which stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindronomic Repeats in Scientific Lingo. And so CRISPR it is. Of course, Google isn't fooled or isn't fooled for long. If you type in CRISPR with an E, the old-fashioned way, you get a CRISPR drawer, also known as a CRISPR. It's a compartment located within a refrigerator designed to prolong the freshness of stored produce. This is provided courtesy of Wikipedia. But directly beneath it, where you're used to seeing four or five obvious next questions, it's all about the new CRISPR. The first is, what is CRISPR genome editing? And your old CRISPR at home, faithfully protecting your days-old head of lettuce, is dust. But wait, there's more. Remember that CRISPR is an acronym, a word whose letters stand for something, like the zip in your zip code stands for Zone Improvement Plan. I wonder if that's on the test to get a job at the post office. But back to the point at hand, when Google provides those handy follow-on questions, CRISPR has become a word where only the first letter is capitalized, like a proper name, like Jane or Bobby, a capital C, followed by a small R-I-S-P-R. Wondering what fate the zip code had at the hands of Google, the offered follow-on questions made zip 
go all small letters, while the post office staunchly kept up, capitalizing the Z, the I, and the P. This spelling conundrum is no friend to audio. Speaking to each other in person, FaceTiming or Skyping, listening to podcasts or radio programs, which spelling, if any, might we be talking about? Even so, some people intentionally misspell. The musical artist known as The Weeknd doesn't use the final E. He spells it W-E-E-K-N-D. No E-N-D at the end of weekend. So I googled it, and I typed it in the old-fashioned way. The Weekend. W-E-E-K-E-N-D. Google knew all about The Weekend, the artist, all right. You had to get to the 14th option to get a link to the Weekend crossword puzzle from The New Yorker. Then on the next page, to get another reference with the normal spelling. The weekend, the artist, had literally taken over and replaced the original spelling of the word. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining. Language has always and only been about the agreement between two or more people about what an utterance or a symbol or a set of symbols mean. I'm just noticing how that happens is changing. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, using technology, science, and boots on the ground to make an environmental assessment of wildlife in war-torn Afghanistan. I'll speak with former chief scientist of the United States Agency in Development, USAID, Alex Dagan, about the Snow Leopard Project. Then we'll look at the current state of phishing on the Internet. It's not only getting more selective, it's even reached the text messages on your mobile phone. We'll hear from Tech Nation regular contributor, McAfee consumer security evangelist, Gary Davis. Ever been in a post-conflict war zone? Ever try to get anything done? Dr. Alex Dagan is the former chief scientist of the United States Agency in Development, USAID, and author of The Snow Leopard Project and Other Adventures in War Zone Conservation. Well, Alex, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you so much. Now, we know about war zones, or we think we know about war zones, you know, all over the world from various peoples. We could even go back to the to American history in the Civil War, you know, General Sherman's famous march to the sea and its scorched earth policy. What qualifies as a war zone? Yeah, I you know, the boundaries between war and insurgency and other levels of informal conflict, I think, are increasingly getting blurred, right? So the book talks about post-conflict Afghanistan, but conflict has never really stopped 
in Afghanistan. There's still IEDs, improvised explosive devices, or vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices, other attacks on individuals, people being killed, people being kidnapped. And it's a continuum. You know, we don't have this situation where we have opposing forces on a battlefield of people wearing uniforms that clearly demark them under the laws of war as uh, combatants. And so that makes the job a lot harder when you can take off your 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 outfit and blend into the local population and, and that insurgency. That idea, those counterinsurgency operations increasingly have been how we think about uh, combat. Now, your book covers a time uh, around 2006, I guess going into 2007, officially mid, post some part of the conflict. Afghanistan has been in conflict for centuries. Yeah, this has been a crossroads of the world and of empire. And you know, one of the one of the things is there's so many awesome archaeological sites in Afghanistan because they've all been the capitals uh of those empires, of those places. But at the same time, these people have, you know, have known nothing but for long periods of time, conflict. Uh, Starting with Alexander the Great, for sure. Alexander the Great and others who have, have invaded the country over time. And, you know, they themselves have had multiple empires and multiple have been part of multiple empires. The, the history is so deep in Afghanistan. It's something we really miss. And the stories are incredible. Uh, this was a country that was in the midst of the Silk Road. It was, you know, a great center of learning for Buddhism. It was a place with so much culture and so much to learn from. Uh, one of the things that's hard for me is how Afghanistan is portrayed in the media. And the thing I wanted to do, at least with this particular book, was change the perception and make people aware that the riches of Afghanistan are so much greater than what they're seeing on the TV. Now, paint for us what Afghanistan looks like. So many times we take pictures of it, and it's it's brown. <laughs> a lot yeah. of brown or a lot of mountains, but it's not like rainforest. It's not lush forests. It's not any of these kind of things. And just give us a picture geographically what kind of land we're talking about and how big it is. It is bigger than Texas, maybe is between Texas and Alaska in terms of size of what we're looking at. And it is this area of exceptional topography and all that topography of mountain chains and deep verdant valleys of forests, which people don't see when they think of Afghanistan or the western end of the Himalayas all creates all this space for incredible wildlife. In the far west, you have these pistachio savannas, savannas that look like the, the Sahel and south of the Sahel in Africa that are just beautiful grasslands uh, interspersed with these wild pistachio trees. In the south, you have these unbelievable, beautiful sort of romantic deserts, the Regenstein Desert. That is this enormous desert in the south. In the northeast, you have what is called the roof of the world, the Pamir Knot, where you have all these mountain chains that kind of collide together and create this massive amount of topography uh, from the Pamir Mountains to the Kunlun to Tian Shan to Hindu Kush, all coming together. And in that place, you have things like snow leopards and Marco Polo sheep and 
uh, spectacular wildlife. And then in the center of the country, it's almost like someone is pushing a fist through it. You have another large plateau called the Hazarajat Plateau, and you have formations that look a lot like the western, uh, southwestern United States, so the Grand Canyon and the parklands of Utah. And so you can imagine that if you're invading Afghanistan, this is a really, you know, the British did it multiple times. They know better now, I believe. And uh, we're talking about really difficult terrain, uh, whether you're attacking the old days when you had to walk in or take horses or however you were getting there, or even today with, with technology. It's incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging just even to live there. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979. This went on for a decade or so. Then uh, post 9-11, of course, the United States went in. And so now you bring us to 2006. Why is that considered now we're going into a post-conflict war zone period? Well, I think part of the idea was that major hostilities had ceased at that point. But actually, 2006, uh, compared to when we went in after 2000, you know, we had three, as you pointed out, three decades of war. So you had that that decade of, you know, the Soviet invasion and ultimately them pulling out. You had a civil war that happened with the Taliban gaining control over the country, you know, fighting the Northern Alliance. And then you had the U.S. invasion after 9-11. So you had three active decades. And then you essentially you had a you had a period of stability and peace where people could travel together and the rebuilding of the country started. But around 2006, you also started to see an inflection point where sort of these informal attacks, attacks on the government and on, on military troops started to increase over time. And then they realized something that soft targets, essentially the NGO community, were a lot easier targets. It's the non-governmental organizations. That's correct. uh, Yeah, that were there. The humanitarians that were there to help Afghanistan. And it was in this time period, you know, around 2007, 2008, uh, that we started seeing attacks on hotels, uh, attacks on NGOs, and that started changing what people could do in Afghanistan. You know, we would get these weekly maps from ANSO, which was an organization that was devoted to helping NGOs with security because we didn't have access to intelligence or the other resources we need. And it was sort of like watching those old school World War II maps of, you know, the German invasion were just increasingly larger and larger parts of the map were getting red. And the areas that we could work in were, were more and more difficult. Now, uh, with the Wildlife Conservation Society, the Bronx Zoo, who I worked with at the time, uh, we worked in some pretty tough areas along the eastern forest of of Afghanistan, places near the Weigal Valley that people have written about uh, that were scenes of, you know, terrible firefights and attacks on U.S. troops and forward operating bases. But we worked there high in sort of the mountains in the villages and sort of sought to keep ourselves uh, below the radar. What were you trying to do there? Our goal was um, specifically to understand what had happened to Afghanistan's wildlife. And again, you might ask what wildlife there is in the country, uh, but uh, it is a sort of a spectacular place for wildlife. It is as much a biological Silk Road that brings together wildlife from Asia, from Europe, and Africa 
in a single place because of that incredible amount of topography as anything else. So one was, what was the status of the wildlife in Afghanistan after three decades of war? Were things like the snow leopard still in the country? The second was, you know, what could we do to actually set up Afghanistan's first protected areas? They had started the process in the 1970s to actually start creating their first national parks that got interrupted by those three decades of war. So assuming we do find that wildlife, assuming we do find the animals and we start this process of national parks, we also need to engage the communities in these process and have them work with us to manage these parks, to own the parks, to benefit from the parks uh, around what they're doing. And then there were other activities that were around uh, the management of the environment for 70 to 80 percent of the people, they're dependent on natural resources in Afghanistan. If if the those natural resources such as the rangelands, the grasslands disappear, so does the livelihood for the people who are living a, a, for the majority of the people in Afghanistan. And then finally, was working on on environmental laws uh, and different policies to support and stand up uh, and strengthen the Afghan institutions that were there. And the last one was really to trance, uh, to create a new generation of Afghan conservationists who uh, could ultimately lead this work. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is the former chief scientist of the United States Agency in Development, USAID, Dr. Alex Dagan. He's the founder and CEO of Conservation X Labs. And we're talking about his book, The Snow Leopard Project and Other Adventures in War Zone Conservation. Now, you go in in 2006, post conflict war zone. And you're trying to get set up here. Technology in a post-conflict war zone is a challenge. I mean, for starters, you got to have a car to drive around. What was the car of choice? Yeah, so, you know, uh, we had 30 days. I came into the country with uh, actually no permission to be a registered NGO in the country. We had $10,000 in cash and we're staying in what could be called a glorified motel in, in, in Kabul called uh, sort of aspirationally named the Park Palace. And it was sort of far from that. Uh, uh, it was it was it was it was better uh, kept as sort of a informal prison for humanitarians. Uh, but we worked in there. And one of the things uh, we didn't want to be was a target. We didn't have weapons. Uh, we weren't traveling with 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 weapons. Uh, we couldn't use armored cars for the areas where we because we had stream crossings and sort of traveling across very difficult environments where we'd have to travel through uh, snow. Uh, we needed to have a vehicle that could actually get into those environments, which meant that we couldn't have a fully armored car uh, to be able to do that. And that meant that like for the day-to-day operation, we needed to sort of fit into the environment. One of the things that's kind of strange about Kabul is you go to Kabul and they have this unbelievable passion for uh, Toyota Corollas and Toyota Camrys. And something like 98% of the cars in front of you are Corollas and Camrys. Like and they it, bought the branding for what you're going to see. <laughs> they, they, they it, 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 you know, it's like Afghanistan sponsored by Toyota. But, but the fact is they're really reliable cars. The Afghans love them. And so everyone has them. So we drove around and we rented from one of our employees uh, that we were able to hire right off the bat because another NGO was essentially uh, ending its operations, uh, put together a team. We ran them out of this motel, uh, including using the computer 
um, the computer lab of the motel and the picnic tables for the first month. Uh, and we used that car to get around Kabul because it was the safest thing to look like everyone else. We then got vehicles that would less get into the field. We, 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 we started hiring uh, four-wheel drives, but we specifically sought uh, Toyota Land Cruisers that were equipped with snorkels because we would submerge the cars as we crossed through some of these rivers. Uh, we needed um, we needed winches. We needed uh, the radio equipment, the materials, to the long-range gas tanks. But the other thing we did was all the vehicles that you get when you order a Toyota Land Cruiser in a place like Afghanistan, they all come white, which is the color of the U.N., all the UN cars were getting attacked, so we actually painted them all uh, Duke blue. I'm a huge fan of the university uh, and teach <laughs> there, but it also made us look a lot more like the the poppy drug smugglers, which is which was the safer thing to be in Afghanistan than to look like the humanitarians, which were then targets of attack. New look for the blue devils. <laughs> <laughs> I see how that works. Now, housing—you have two choices of housing. You get kind of old and new. Yeah, so so uh you know one of the great one of the great things about uh traditional Afghan houses is they're very simple but they have like these 2 foot thick mud walls that are super warm and they're awesome. Uh the newer houses uh they they were they they would call them uh they were sort of these flat rooftopped houses with super shoddy construction uh that we were we called them uh uh, Pakistani birthday cakes because they had that sort of or a wedding cake because they had the square, that sort of layered, and yeah. layered and the thought was that during an earthquake which happened a lot in that time they would all go flat uh, and in fact one of my moments um, was waking up one morning and having this feeling that a giant was running his like running a shoulder into my build into the house and I was, I was like, why? I was very sleepy. I think I was very tired. And I was like, why would there be a person that big shaking my entire house? Then realized it was an earthquake. R ran outside to organize everyone to go look for anyone else left in the house, and everyone, my my entire team had already left. And I was, <laughs> yeah. I was like, thanks, thanks for, guys, thank, thanks for coming back and getting me. But, um, but that, but, but you know, the other, we we had all kinds of issues. The 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 heating units that would actually uh, warm the water when you could get warm water in the bathrooms had a tendency to explode. Uh, the 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 bukharis, which are the the stoves that they would use, had a problem with carbon monoxide. And, and literally, we would lose an NGO from from poisoning uh, every winter. Uh, they were poorly insulated places, so we'd keep uh, you know live fire gas stoves. I lost like three jackets due to that. A uh, little too it, close to the stove. Uh, well, because if you're far if you're far enough away, you would freeze. If you're close, you risk the fire. You risk the fire hazard that you had. So there was a number of uh, sort of unique issues to kind of uh, setting up the offices. But the main thing was we wanted to save money for the American people. This was USAID funding, the U.S. taxpayer funding that was funding this project, uh, and we wanted to have as many resources as possible for training Afghans for for developing the future conservationists for being able to have the field equipment and the projects and the and the opportunity to build up national parks. And we worked with a number of other partners, the Asian Development Bank, the United Nations Environmental Program, uh, United Nations Development Programs were all key partners on this. This was no means a single organization that was doing it, but it was us working together. Uh, and we're all sort of facing these circumstances. Now, of course, telephone technology moved. So you had satellite phones. 
We had satellite phones. We had this situation that uh, most of our teams were uh, traveling for weeks uh, on the back of horses or yaks. And so we were in one of sort of the most remote places you can be in um, outside of a place like the Arctic or Antarctica. Uh, And these teams were in the Himalayas. We were in this place called the Wakhan Corridor, which is a – it was essentially a buffer zone between the British Empire and the Russian Empire. And it is this this set of mountains that reaches out from Afghanistan and touches China – uh, and part of the part of the challenge was how do we keep in touch with these teams when they don't have uh, when it's not sunny every day when uh, we have a certain amount of weight that we can carry they are traveling with everything with them we've got scientific equipment that they've got to use and then uh, you know h- how do we have sufficient backup systems uh, not overly drain the batteries and then be able to extract them if something happens and so they were supposed to check in once a day via text message using satellite phones within what they're doing but part of the the issue is if we did didn't hear from them after two days, we had to make a decision. Do we activate, you know, at the cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars, high altitude helicopters, medics, and uh, military forces because we needed, we don't know what the situation that they were in is. Uh, and we only had a single data point of where they were last or, or where they were uh, when they had checked in. Because when they check in, they're also sending us their GPS location. So then that meant that they could have traveled 24 hours in that time period. And then the ability – you're at such a high altitude, you can't even use a normal helicopter. You've got to use a helicopter that's adjusted for the thin air uh, that you have in those places to be able to take this on. And these are solar-powered batteries. They're solar-powered we, phones, either, so no, no sun. You might run out of charge. You might run out of charge if you've got renewable batteries. We'd also have uh, extra batteries for, for the phones within what we're trying to do. But it wasn't perfect. And we had multiple backup systems in terms of what we, we were doing. But the decisions were, you know, it was worrisome for me because, you know, the best part of what we had to do was train people to fend for themselves, essentially giving them first responder training that would and all the equipment that if they had a bad injury, if they came under a sickness, that they had everything necessary to uh, essentially um, cover themselves until we could come and get them. And that was that was the biggest, you know, that was the that was the thing that that weighed on me the most was was, you know, we had 80 staff and the lives of those 80 staff were dependent on us. And we had to find a way to, uh, you know, on a six point nine million dollar budget, figure out how to do security, how to get teams into super remote areas, how to, you know, make sure that most of our money goes to conservation impact, how to actually uh, um be able to take care of our people. And that was one of the hardest things was realizing the stress that a place like Afghanistan had, not on the Afghans I worked on, uh, that I worked with as part of our team, but, but on our Westerners that I thought, uh, that were highly experienced international travelers. All of this is going on, you know, trying to get people into place, trying to make this team get together. And part of what you're doing First is an environmental assessment. What is entailed in an environmental assessment now that we know about this place and all its topography and it's larger than the state of Texas? 
part of it is understanding uh, this question of what wildlife is left. And we knew that there were some species we really wanted to find out information on. I've been speaking with Alex Dagan, the author of The Snow Leopard Project and Other Adventures in War Zone Conservation. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at iTunes, NPR One, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, those emails that are trying to get you to give up your personal information, we'll learn a whole lot about phishing from our regular contributor, Gary Davis, the Chief Consumer Security Evangelist at McAfee. Stay with us. Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. Alex Dagan, the founder and CEO of Conservation X Labs and the author of The Snow Leopard Project and Other Adventures in War Zone Conservation. This question of what wildlife is left. And we knew that there were some species we really wanted to find out information on. So what snow leopards were, you know, what was the status of the snow leopard population, this beautiful, elusive, you know, pale you know, cat that that resides on these mountaintops, on these glaciers, uh, and hunts uh, wildlife in that area, including the Marco Polo sheep and the ibex and 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 other animals that were there. They're very hard. Along with another one called uh, the Marco Polo sheep, which were literally described by Marco Polo passing through the region. On his travels, uh, I like to call them Princess Leia sheep because their horns, they're the biggest of the mountain sheep. Those horns are almost six feet long if you follow the curve of the horns. And they kind of curl around like Princess Leia uh, from the original Star Wars. Uh, But those sheep are almost impossible to get near. 
Uh, it's very difficult to get in close proximity to them. You generally can get within a quarter of a mile to half a mile uh, of, of those animals. And then they run over the next mountain ridge uh, into the next valley. Uh, and so there is some, you know, we couldn't get close enough to dart them, which was a limitation. We thought about helicopters, but again, to dart them from helicopters, but there's a risk of something called, uh, and we also thought about setting up large nets across the valley, uh, but there's a risk of something called capture myopathia, which uh, happens when there's a lack of certain minerals in the grass that the animals will go into such a period of stress that they literally die upon being darted or or, or running into these nets. Uh, we also had the issue of the elevation for the helicopters and being able to to use helicopters that needed that kind of um, maneuverability at in thin air at, you know, the base of the valleys we were working at in the Pamir Mountains was at 9,000 feet. With the snow leopards, it's even a little bit harder. And so we had to use tools like genetics, essentially using the scats, uh, the, the, the droppings of the snow leopards to track uh, and understand the population structure and distribution around what we're doing. And we'd use, uh, we'd use camera traps. And then ultimately, we would put satellite uh, collars on these animals uh, to be able to, to, to be able to follow them. One of the things we found was that the snow leopard population was even better than we thought, which was an amazing sign of optimism for a place uh, that had been really lost in war for so long. Uh, you know, being able to actually highlight that there was this spectacular wildlife really did resound with the Afghans. And the Afghans themselves um, were incredibly uh, surprising to me, supportive of the project of, you know, I've worked across the world in multiple countries doing conservation, uh, including years in Madagascar, in Russia, in Latin America, and Afghanistan was by far the easiest place I ever worked as a conservationist because people intuitively and naturally understood the link between wildlife and and and. Uh, and their own identity and and natural resources and their own survival. Did this include the birds? Yeah. So uh, uh, it there there it did. And there's some pretty spectacular birds in Afghanistan. But we also ran into this this problem uh, that we found. I was riding into the country on a flight one morning and uh, the flight steward saw that I happened to have a PlayStation portable uh, that I used to entertain myself on long international flights. And he had one too, and he had just gotten it. And he said, look, I have a video on mine. And his video was of the same commercial airline being filled with these uh, sacred falcons uh, and a group of individuals from the Gulf that were going into Kandahar, one of the least stable parts of Afghanistan, to go on a hunting expedition uh, for weeks on end. And what they were hunting was this incredible bird called the Hubara Bustard, uh, which was this two foot plus high bird that has this unbelievably unique uh, mating protocol, which it uses to impress its females, uh, where the males will run around, uh, essentially turn themselves into what looks like a volleyball. They're, they're, they puff up their feathers, stick their head into the feathers so they can't see, and run around zigzagging. Well, the, uh, uh, the, the sacred falcons, this flight was probably filled with 30 of these birds. They had rented the, this commercial jet. 
uh, for these birds. Uh, they cost anywhere from $10,000 to a $1 million a piece, with the wild ones being. And they can kill sometimes thousands of these hubara bustards on these hunting expeditions. The bigger issue is how can you go into an active war zone, into one of the least stable parts of the country, uh, and go on vacation and go on this kind of trip unless there are links to, to other elements. A trip are, of destruction on yeah, top of it. Yeah, a trip of destruction uh, on top of it. This happened in Pakistan recently where thousands of these Hubara bustards were killed on one hunting expedition. And it, it led to a lot of outrage because, you know, our, our, our comet in Afghanistan or our case – and I think the reason we were successful with the Afghan people, we never ran into trouble with corruption, for instance, was because we made the case that for people who are refugees for the last 30 years in Iran, in Afghan, in Pakistan, in the Emirates, in Saudi, in Europe, uh, that protecting the wildlife was a way of regaining Afghan identity and, and, and reaffirming Afghan identity. And people, people like that. Um, they understood it. It came to them because the insides of their houses were painted with images of the wildlife, were decorated with parts of these wildlife. They, it mattered something to them. Now, you can't actually do a comparative before and after the conflict. It's, it's almost like Afghanistan has always known conflict. So is the idea to try to find what's there, protect it, and in some cases grow it? That's a, that's a great statement. One of the things we had to do was actually go deep into kind of historical records of previous biological expeditions that were in Afghanistan. So the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago had something called the Street Expedition that had uh, collected lots of animals for the museum, which was a record of biodiversity in Afghanistan. And when was that? That was in the night. I think it was around the night. Uh, I can't. It's either the 1950s to 60s, uh, somewhere. A while somewhere. ago, yeah. So it, it was well before 1979. The Russian had the Russians had done a few expeditions while they were uh, invading the country, but they were few and far in between. The Danes in 1949 had done some expeditions into Afghanistan, and the British had it as well. So we went deep into the historical record to really find. You know, what was the status? What was known? We collected almost every document we could find. And then the other thing we did is we gave them all the way to the other organizations working in Afghanistan because uh, we thought it was important for everyone to have access to that collection of documents. Well, you have an undergraduate in zoology, a Ph.D. in evolutionary biology, and a law degree specializing in international law. You're really good at going to school, Alice. <laughs> <laughs> i got to give you that for sure. Props there. Um, but it's the sort of the multidisciplinarity of it all, uh, which rings true for so much these days when we're trying to solve problems. But let's get specific. Why is the knowledge of international law and diplomacy, uh, what does that have to go hand in hand with science? If you just know the science, you can run into problems. If you just know the law and diplomacy, why do we need to bring that together? That's a great question. The the increasingly, you know, d diplomacy used to be yeah. about place and about things like sovereignty, right? And that sovereignty would stop at the borders of our country. But increasingly, what we're finding is everything from 
climate change to economics to disease and pathogens to technology really do, and wildlife right does not replay, you know does not respect those political boundaries uh that are out there and a lot of the challenges that we are facing as a country uh understanding what crispr means uh understanding what uh, the you know robotics, machine vision, machine learning means understanding you know literally the transformative power that the internet has had uh, not only on our country but on the political dynamics of other countries and tying into that things like cybersecurity and national security require us to have individuals who transcend the boundary of of disciplines, particularly that bring together science and policy as a way to do so. In Afghanistan, the international law was very useful and law in general was useful because we did a lot of things to fight uh, wildlife trafficking, for instance, in the country. But it was also really understanding that law is, you know, the elements of the social contract. It's the fabric of the social contract on which we hang societies. And so understanding that and understanding how we use it to to help build things like democracy were really important uh, in terms of respect for the rule of law that would be absolutely necessary for achieving the scientific and conservation goals uh, that we have. The one other thing I would just say about sort of diplomacy, international law, and international science is one of the things that, that scientific cooperation and we one of the projects we had in Afghanistan was trying to build a four-country peace park between Afghanistan, Pakistan, Tajikistan, and China uh, and creating a massive uh, transnational protected area was that, you know, if you think about science, it is a set of values that at least in the United States, we, you know, and I think in most places around the world that people respect uh, and that we value. So transparency, meritocracy, respect for evidence uh, are all critical aspects of the scientific method. And that set of values is actually something that can transcend ethnicity and religion and politics and geography in a really powerful way. While it may not be the official relationship between a country, it can create a foundation on which that relationship is based. Well, Alex, we haven't gotten to a number of things that are in your book, and we haven't even talked about how now you're in Washington, <laughs> sort of a constant conflict war zone of its sorts of its own uh, and, especially these days yeah right uh, you're the founder and ceo of conservation x labs and we'll want to talk about that at a future time so i hope you come back and see us again thank you so much for having me my guest today is alex dagan the book is the snow leopard project and other adventures in war zone conservation it's published by public affairs i'm moira gunn you're listening to tech nation I was surprised to learn that on the internet, nearly three quarters of all cyber attacks start with what's called a phishing email, or should we say, a fishy email. I was able to speak with regular Tech Nation contributor Gary Davis, the chief consumer security evangelist at McAfee. Now we always hear about phishing. It's yeah. P H I S H I N G. Yes. Fishing. Fishing with Not a P. like gone fishing. It's not like gone fishing, but it's very similar. If you think about how we fish, we put the, the concept is let's put a lot of lines in the water and see if we can snag a fish, right? So yeah. it's 
conceptually fishing, but it's a different type of fishing. It's fishing for you. Yeah, it's fishing for the bad guys. 71% of all cyber attacks start with a phishing email. Yeah, yeah. You know, phishing preys on our nature to to act on email. Right? We get an email um and and quite honestly for for your listeners, the where phishing is usually most effective targeting organizations in particular is sending something to HR. HR is expecting to get resumes for candidates who are applying for jobs, right? More often than not, those include some sort of malicious payload, which will allow them to get behind your firewall and do something malicious in your company. So that's one of the more popular techniques for for accessing and trying to get inside a company. But yeah, it's just phishing 71% because they know what works. They know that, that that if they write it well enough and it looks like it's from somebody you know and trust, that you're going to do the action you're looking for, which is going to la- enable them to get access to the information they're trying to get access to. And the initial thing they may have asked you for may not seem all that big, like give us all your money or give oh. us all your passwords or give us all your account or just click here and we can resolve a fairly benign situation. Like we yeah. need to update the the month and date on your credit card because that frequently happens. Yeah, yeah. You know that you're 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 you get a new credit card after a few years. It's the same everything. It's yeah. just the month and date. But I was like, oh yeah, I guess so. I guess yeah. we need to. Yeah. And it's accounting. It's accounting from this global firm. Yeah. You know, emailing me to say, hey, you need to update it. Yeah. That happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I was in Greece, and I was went to the. I was staying in the Hilton there. And, you know, even though I paid using points, they said, well, we need a credit card for incidentals. And they had my credit card on file. Well, typically I'm using a different credit card because it's usually company related. And since I was using points, I was putting it on my personal card. And and after a little while, they called me, hey, your credit card's not working. What do you mean it's not working? And come to find out after I called my bank, it had been such a long time since I accessed the application. You're right. I got a new credit card new uh, expiration date, and I hadn't updated it. But you're right. It would be very benign to get, oh, yeah, I, I do use that service. Um, I should go in and change it. But that's where you. this is where we, we need to change our behaviors because instead of clicking on that email and just blindly following wherever it leads me, if I was to think, well, geez, I need to go change my um, my my expiration date for Hilton, I went to my Hilton app open that up and change it in there instead of trying to follow a link. I, so if I, they come at you and it's valid, you have you, what you do is you go around the other way, have exactly. your own access. In the old days, you say, I'm going to go in and see the lady at the bank <laughs> or the gentleman at the bank. And now it's like, no, no, don't go through what informed you of exactly. whatever you do. You think about it. Every month we get a statement from our bank. Right, and I get one from my bank, and and I am ninety nine point nine percent sure that that's a good email, but I have trained myself not to click on that email. Instead, I'll go to my, I'll log into my bank account, and I'll look at my account there because I just I've conditioned myself not to click on links in email, even if you think it's from a known good source, because you just never know that the bad guys are getting so good. It's what's called spoofing. Where you think it's coming from an organization, but they've they've changed something ever so slightly that you're going to someplace you shouldn't be going. So if if you can just teach yourself or train yourself when you, when you get an email and you think it's legitimate, you're expecting it, and it's from somebody you'd expect to get a notification from, 
instead of acting on the email, go directly to the source and interact that way. It's going to save you potentially a lot of heartache. And to make matters even worse, there's different kinds of fishing, spear fishing, whale fishing, all have smishing smishing oh my goodness okay let's go down through them in any order you would like yeah well well smishing is probably the most well regular fishing is is as simple as sending a bunch of emails out in mass hoping that somebody is going to you know take your bait um smishing is actually when they'll send it to your phone via an sms or text message so imagine getting some sort of account information to your phone which is not that unlikely i Almost every place I your, go now. Your bill is due. Yeah, yeah. You cl- click here to pay. Well, okay, let me click on it because I'm expecting it. So getting it on your phone, that's called smishing. Uh, spear phishing is where you actually do what's called social engineering or you try to collect information about a, a particular group of people and then use it to target that group. You know, a good example is a couple of years ago, the um, I think it was one of the NBA teams, they had gotten an email from the owner saying, oh, Send me your username and password because we got this special thing we want to do for you. Well, so they, of course, it's from our owner. It's got our logo on it. Let me go ahead and send my username and password, which, of course, opened up the, the door to have <laughs> anybody go and do what they want. So, But they used a combination of you know, you know, techniques that use the imagery and the tone and the socially engineered, socially engineered information about the players and organization to go do something like that. Another a subset of spear fishing is called whale fishing, and that's where you you tend to focus on a high net worth individual, let's say the CEO or some high level executive in a company, using other techniques. So you, let's say that you know that the, they know that the CEO is on vacation, so they they send a, an email, spoof the CFO to somebody else in the organization, saying, "Well, the CEO told me to do this, so all these mechanics work using." high net worth individuals to go do malicious deeds. And there's other types of, of phishing. There's search engine phishing where you would basically put up a, a a fake search site in order to direct people to your own search results, which would in turn take you to fraudulent pages. So there, there are a, a variety of different techniques around phishing, all of which has the intent of trying to extract information from you do something that you wouldn't otherwise do and or in a lot of cases they're trying to install malware on your device of, of some type. Now, in all those cases, I guess you could say what we might call the bleeding heart phishing. That's out there. It happens more than you might know. Whenever there is a a major event, let's say there's a natural disaster, a um, you know, we, we saw a lot of traffic around the Boeing Max 8 when you had those two crashes and there was a lot of pouring out to help those in need and they would create these fake sites and lure people in to give them money. Um, that's another great example. Big sporting events, the Super Bowl, the World Cup, all these big sporting events, the um, NCAA tournament, all these events, you know, pull, everybody knows, or the, the bad guys know that there's going to be a lot of attention given to these. So they're going to try to leverage those in order to try to get you to do something you wouldn't realize you wouldn't otherwise do. But that's a great point. They almost always try to tie it to something that's going to be on your mind, some sort of pop culture reference that would that would that would motivate you to go do something. And it's just it's too bad because you know, people typically are are engaging with these because they feel like they genuinely want to help. And then to know that you're taking advantage of that our, our goodwill, 
I just, it's just and it's perfect because you don't expect anything back. Yeah, it's yeah. not like I bought something. Where is it? It's like exactly. Well, in some cases, for example, you may have thought, "Well, I'm going to buy tickets to the game or the whatever." When you don't get the tickets, that would be a case where that wasn't true. But you're right. When it comes to goodwill, natural disasters, you know, just relief for things that have gone on in the world. You're right. You're not expecting anything in return except the the, the knowledge that you did something good. And that just it breaks my heart when I hear about things like that. You know, this was all pre-internet. People have been doing this f- for a long, long, long time. Yeah, yeah. Although the internet has made it very automatic now. I guess the the point is the the barrier to entry to do this has been dramatically reduced because it's it's it doesn't take that much effort to dupe somebody into giving you money that that you sh- shouldn't otherwise be getting. And fishing per se isn't illegal. It's when you take money for fraudulent ends that's when we get into what's legal and illegal. Right? Well, but, but by nature, fishing it, you're you're trying to access information that you shouldn't have access to. So I think it's 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 probably I would call it legally gray. But right, and it's not until you actually give your credit card to a fraudster and something bad happens that that you, when you, the bad happens, yeah. they've crossed the line. Yeah, then they'll act on it. I, I remember when my identity was stolen way back in the day, um, I, I remember the, the, the guy who did it lived up in Pennsylvania someplace. And the way it worked back then is they would they, they got a $20,000 credit card, ran up $18,000 over the course of two days, and then the bank decided, well, we should check to make sure that this guy is legit. And and what they used to do is they'd go to electronic goods stores like Best Buy, and they would buy $18,000 worth of electronic goods, then take it to a different Best Buy for cash back. So that's how they would cash out the, the, the value of the credit card, knowing that it had a limited life. And I remember I, I got a call once. It was from the, the, the police department in Pennsylvania. Say, hey, we caught the guy you know, trying to return your goods or the, the goods he bought with your credit card at a Best Buy. <laughs> And and they and I said, yeah, go go get the guy. And I said, no, nah, it's just too much work. So they, they're, it's really hard to motivate law enforcement because they got other things they got to focus on. They've got you know all these other you, you know, bad criminals doing you know physical harm to to whomever that that they so and and much higher ticket items too. Yeah, you know, yeah. when they were looking at it, they might have only been looking at five or six hundred dollars. Yeah, because they had to go to a lot of Best Buys, buy a lot of stuff. Return yeah. a lot of stuff, going back and forth. It all is pretty small. Yeah, exactly. In comparison, yeah, because so, the, the, the identity theft knew not to try to to, to return it all to one Best Buy, because then that would be a, even a bigger red flag. But you're right. If I'm a if I'm local local law enforcement, eh, it's just a couple hundred dollars. But I got you know drug dealers that got to go break up and bat, other bad things. So I'm gonna go focus on that and really not focus. So it's just, it, but you, that doesn't make you feel like you're less of a victim. Nobody wants to be a victim of a scam or an identity theft. Nobody ever wants to be a victim. We 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 empathize with victims because we can put ourselves in their shoes, and and that's unfortunately one of the challenges in our space. Is I think a lot of the reasons why people aren't better about things like password hygiene and you know checking their credit history and stuff like that is because well they don't think it's going to happen to them. They think it's going to happen to somebody else, and because of that, I can be a little bit more relaxed in, in what I do. And it's not just uh, your hygiene. You may not be able to prevent it. I was I stopped off an interstate and bought a couple little things, uh, 
uh, and gassed up at a little place, but it wasn't the one of the really big ones. Just happened to go in there. It was convenient there, and we were kind of in the middle of nowhere. And for some reason, it's like, well, it didn't take. Put this, put this in again. So I put it in again. So I thought, oh, they're probably going to double charge me. Yeah. They didn't double charge me. They took the card, and then here I was in Northern California, and within just a few hours, someone in a in another gas station in San Antonio, Texas, bought $115 worth of towels, shop towels, <laughs> windshield wiper stuff. I mean, it was just like, do, 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 do. let's yeah. see, $115 worth of that. I don't know how I could have stopped that. Uh, you can't. That's it. They're, part of this is we, we can do all we can do to not be a victim online. But I think a big part of the, the educational process is knowing what to do. You know, in that case, knowing to reach out to your credit card immediately and, and stopping any other transactions and, and going through the process. You're right. There are things like that. That was probably a skimmer. They probably, when they scanned it twice, they probably scanned it once for the gas that you actually bought. And the other one, even though you didn't see it, probably went through a different um, reader. I actually put it in myself. Put oh, it okay. in, took it out, put it in, took it out. Hmm. Yeah. They're You're always right. one step ahead. Well, you know... It's they're in it to make money, right? It's a for-profit business, for lack of a better word. So they're always going to be trying to figure out more effective ways to dupe people and to to either dupe people or just take advantage of people without their knowledge, and and do it for as long as they can. Imagine if you didn't quickly catch the fact that you were getting charged for stuff in San Antonio and it went on for a week or so. They would yeah. just keep on charging, charging, charging until. You know, either it said you, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, or hopefully your bank would realize. Well, hold on, you just used your card in Northern California, which you would expect, and now that same card is being used to buy something in San Antonio. That, that would you would think your your she bank travels fast, but oh, yeah. not that fast. There that's you that's go. hypersonic speed for sure. Hypersonic, Gary. Always a pleasure. Please come back. See you soon. I'll do that. Thanks for having me. Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis is the chief consumer security evangelist at McAfee, the website where you can check if your email plus password has been compromised is have I, that's the letter I, been pawned.com with pawned spelled without an A. That's P-W-N-E-D. So it's have I been pawned.com with pawned spelled P-W-N-E-D. And that link will be on the Tech Nation website also. Of course, when Gary said it during our conversation, he said, have I been pwned.com? And yes, that's true. Gary's from Texas, and that's part of his charm. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. 
TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.